Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and welcome to another episode of Page Chewing Friday Conversations. And this week, we are here with uh, one of the most interesting people I've ever talked to, which is Mr. Bill Richardson. Bill, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, happy to. Had a great time the last time and was have been looking forward to get on here with you guys again. So for people who aren't familiar with your work, what uh, can you tell us a bit about your, your work and kind of what, what you do? Sure. Um, so I've been a filmmaker for 30 years and uh, sort of wrapped that part of my life up, still do some of that. But these days I'm writing books and most of them are scary. Uh, the latest one that I've got that we'll talk about a little bit later is, is, is sort of epic fantasy. Um, but I've been fortunate to travel all over the world, do lots of things, play cards with Darth Vader, uh, you know, <laughs> have, have some wonderful experiences. And, uh, these days I'm trying to spend every waking and living hour, uh, writing books. Nice. So tell us a bit about your, your newest book. What, what is it about? How did it, how did it come to be? Well, the newest book is called Of Demons and Dragons, and it's a it's a as short as a novel goes. Most novels are 60 or 80,000 words. This one's about about 40 something thousand words. And um, it's about this king who is living in an age when there's prosperity in his kingdom. He's done a great job of ruling. Everything has gone easy. Everybody's happy and content. But he starts dreaming about the days of old with his father and his grandfathers who were the, you know, people wrote stories about them and sung songs about them because of their great deeds. And because everything has gone smooth in, during his reign, he's never had that. And he, he thinks he's going to die in obscurity. And then this army become, begins marching through the area. He's, he's in one of these Nordic kingdoms and it begins destroying every kingdom on its way. And his is the next kingdom. And he begins trying to figure out a way that he can take on this army that's destroyed um, kingdoms much larger than his. And uh, his sort of right-hand man, a guy named Vode, tells him about this book. And it's a, it's a magical book, but it's a cursed book. And whenever you use it, um, whatever good it does you, it does an equal amount of bad. And so he uses the book to, to conjure a dragon that he hopes will help him overcome this army and that backfires on him, and he ends up having to take on both the dragon and this army that's actually headed up by a, a demon king. So um, it's uh, it's a it's you know all the stuff I write is, is fast paced. Uh, this has got that that epic sort of feel to it. It has forty uh, color illustrations in it, full full paintings in it. And the interesting part of the origin of this story is that it was inspired by the paintings that I use in it. You know, as an artist and a creator, you're always looking for new ways to sort of fuel your creativity. And I ran across this art that I really loved by a guy named uh, uh, Vuk Kostic. And um, I actually wrote the story around the paintings that are in the book. And uh, you know, normally it's the opposite. You know, you, you write a story and you, you create the art to go along with it. So that was it was a, an unusual origin. And um, they're full color, full painted works. They're, I've gotten so much good feedback about the about the art in the book. And these days, you don't get a lot of that. It's so expensive to create books with art in it that you you don't get it. Um, and so uh, these are these are just beautiful. They really add to the story, and um, it, it's the sort of thing that you just don't get to see anymore. You, you used to see those prints in the '70s and the '80s. And that sort of stuff, but it's just become so cost prohibitive. You don't get to see it anymore. And that was one of the other reason I wanted to do it is I wanted to do something that was unique and a little bit different and that would give you a different sort of experience um, than you get with, with most of the books that are out there these days. If I could ask you a question, Bill, about that, because obviously, you know, your Santa came from the art to, to the books wise. Was it a case that you were, putting your effort into the art and you, you kind of, as one picture led to another one, it was almost telling the story as you were doing it. Or was that somewhere where you got like five, 10 pictures through and then, then come to it? The, uh, it was sort of like the way a lot of things go is that there were, uh, th this artist had done a, a series of these, these paintings and uh, I liked them. I liked the characters that I saw in them. And so I started beginning to try to formulate a story uh, with those characters that it showed in the, in the, in the different paintings. And then you go back and forth, you know, you, 
you write some toward the the art and then you do some things to create some art that would go along with the other parts of the story because it's right. i've done several books like this they're not none of those are none of the other ones are published yet but you you can there it's always a back and forth process you know you, your your creative mind never completely goes along with the images and when it veers off you've got to figure out okay well i've got to come up with images to go with that and so it was a very back and forth process um that actually i spent years on um this the earliest drafts of this book were like eight years ago wow wow Long time yeah, you, you 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 don't realize that you know you read a book that somebody wrote and you don't realize the sort of time and effort that goes into it and especially this book i mean you'll read this book in two days and um you know you don't realize the amount of effort and time that that a creator puts into it and that's beside all the work that that the artist did on on the paintings and all the paintings existed before i started the book I, I gotta is that is it um in can you give us a rough estimation bill about publication timelines like is it on is it in pre-order or it's, it's it's on, the the there's an ebook version on amazon right now um the the truth is is that for a hard copy all the um uh, supply chain problems and all the other problems of going on in china all the printing is done in china these days and so uh it's 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 made me have to delay doing a print version of the book. Um, and those are quite expensive. Those are quite expensive. You have to do, uh, a lot of times you'll have to do, you know, 5,000 copies just to get started. Uh, and it, it's really, it's a little bit, it's cost prohibitive. That's one thing. But the other thing is, is that you have to store this material until you're able to, you know, get it out in the distribution channels. And uh, sometimes it's more than a garage full. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I hear you. I just added to my TBR. I was looking for it, so I just want to make sure that um, you know it was available. So I just, I just, but, yeah. The play, it, right now, you can find it on Amazon is in an ebook version. That's that's the only source of finding it. And I've got an ebook version that will be out soon. Uh, I've been going through a lot of health issues, and I haven't been able to finish the ebook version. But the ebook version, um, there's a guy named Graham Mack that that did the uh, the voice for me, and. Uh, it has, I've been a filmmaker for many years. And so I use that skill and it's got a full, what I call a 3d, uh, soundscape to it. It has music and effects. And, uh, I, I, I say it's uh, a movie for your ears. And so it's, it's more than just getting the, the voice done. Uh, it takes wow. for every minute of the audio book, you're probably spending 30 minutes uh, on creating the soundscape and all the things that go with that. So it's, it's a real labor intensive process, but again, I'm trying to create things that are, um, unique and you don't, it's usually only the really big books that are released or, or maybe, uh, something that goes back to being a, a, a an update of Frankenstein or, uh, maybe the tales of Edgar Allan Poe that you get this kind of full sound sort of treatment to it. And uh, I wanted my books to stand out a little bit, and I had that skill. So uh, I've invested the time and effort and money into uh, creating, you know, books that have got another layer of uh, of entertainment to them. Sounds awesome. Yeah, so it sounds like to sorry, sorry, P. I'll go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it sounds like a real proper labor of love in terms of not just creating content to put out there to kind of keep your creative juices just flowing this is more of an all-encompassing kind of, of thing where you're taking one piece and kind of building out from that if that makes sense rather than kind of just supply chain or as you say you kind of get one out you get another one out that kind of thing right yeah and and the thing about different kinds of media is that not everybody reads books um and not everybody listens to audiobooks and so you're trying to find different ways to get to readers and, and consumers. But also I, I'm trying to, each way you consume this, if you read it and see the pictures, you have one experience, but if you listen to the audiobook, you'll have a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. It's one of the reasons I do this, this full sound design. And that way uh, each of the works has different layers and levels. It reaches different people, but also even if you, you, 
both read one and then listen to the audiobook for the same book, you have a completely different experience. And uh, I really like playing with that. I think it, that's a really, it's a really fun pool to play in. Hmm. We have a couple of comments. Do you want to catch up? Uh, <clears throat> hello, Heather. Happy Friday. Hey, Glad Heather. you can make it. Uh, Aaron, happy Friday, Aaron. everyone. Though it's Saturday here. <laughs> Our hey, friend Drew. Drew is here. Happy weekend. Uh, oh. Carl is here. Hello, oh. Carl. The Reichman. Uh, Good. Yeah. <laughs> Colin's Corner's here. Thanks for uh, dropping by, Colin. And uh, Drew had a comment. I like the artwork behind you, Bill. Uh, thank you. Uh, I have been a collector of popular culture art basically for, for many, many years. Um, let me see if everything's backwards for me when I'm looking. This <laughs> is uh, Boris Vallejo here. Um, this one right here is Dave McKean who uh, did all the Sandman books with uh, oh. uh, all the Sandman covers and uh, a lot of work since then. And uh, I, I have a, a pretty extensive collection of popular culture artists. One of the things I've been doing for quite some, since 99, I started in 99. And okay. um, it's just been, it's been one of the most fun things that I have done is I, I have art by the, the people that were my heroes growing up. Um, one of them, if, if you collect art, the thing to do is if you can get somebody who is, you know, the main guy in a certain art form, like, you know, if you're looking for um, uh, expressionism, you know, or impressionism, you know, you want a Monet. Uh, and so I've got some Kirby art. So Kirby is sort of the king of comic book art. Um and the thing that I, I spent years trying to get was work by a guy named Frank Frazetta, who's yeah. kind of the Picasso of fantasy art. And uh, it was a character that I, who's an artist that I discovered when I was 15. And I never thought in a million years I could ever own something that was an original piece of his art. And it took me 30 years to, to get one, but uh, I worked my way up. And, and so just that the hunt for that and the, the yeah. process of, of getting there. And, and then to actually have something that was uh, a piece of work by a guy who's, you know, unquestionably the, 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 the God of, of fantasy art is just, it's just an amazing feeling. I have a, a death dealer on my arm. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Death dealer is the boss. And I wish I had a death dealer, but unfortunately I don't have $3 million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't, have, we don't all have Steve money, you know, well, yeah. I, could the, I could swing the tattoo. I just couldn't swing the. Not only own one, I have it on my body. Yeah, it's portable. Goes with me everywhere. Yeah. Uh, Natasha Stone. Hey, Natasha. Hey, everyone. I'm a school teacher, and this is the start of my February break. This is a great way huh? to start it. Oh, nice. Thank you for coming by. Nice. Happy break. Hope you enjoy your break. Yeah. Yeah. Happy break. And uh, Matt is taking shots oh. at me. Oh snap! Kind of a mess. It's kind of a mess right now. I need to get it trimmed. It's getting a little. That's out. okay. You can join. We can join the Scruffy Beard Club. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the Scruffy Beard Club now. Uh, the blue, uh, black and blue yeah. color reader. Thanks for coming by. And hey, man. Uh, I, I didn't realize. I just went and checked. He does have a, a channel, so everyone go and check that out. I just found it this week, so I didn't even. Okay. Know. Oh, me, so subscribe to that. Everyone, be sure and go go check it out. Support it. And Natasha is a literary a literacy specialist from K three. Nice. Oh, nice. Lots of teachers. Lot, we know lots of teachers. Yeah. Our friend Chris here is a teacher as well. Indeed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Taylor's a teacher too, or maybe between the pages co host. She's a, mm -hmm. a teacher. So I just had a, a question, Bill. Um, so, I mean, and this, this Demons and Dragons sounds right up my alley. I was like, ooh, ooh. You know, I was getting that, that FOMO feeling right away um, <laughs> for about your book, as Taylor would, our friend Taylor would say about uh, feeling left out. So, but predominantly understand that most of your books, most of the books you've written are in the horror genre. So what, what why the departure to, um, you know, something that sounds, I, there, I mean, there may be a horror element. Can't wait to hear what you have to say about your book, but um, a bit more about your book in terms of what, what you'd consider it or classify it. But what, why the departure from your, you know, kind of your mainstream genre of horror into what sounds like more epic fantasy? Um. One, I get bored easy, and uh, I'm always looking to do different things. And then, you know, I grew up. Oh, dear. Oh, we lost Bill. 
I didn't realize I was on mute. Yeah, uh, he'll be back. We'll just he's, yeah. he's leaving us in suspense. I guess. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Left us hanging. That's okay. Yeah. I'm used to it. <laughs> there you go. There we go. There was a ghost in the machine there. No, actually, I just teleported. And uh, <laughs> um, no, so I, um, I I consume a lot of different kind of media and a lot of different kind of stories and love fantasy and science fiction and horror and detective fiction and just about everything. And, um, you know, I would love to be um, one of those writers that everybody in our, on earth reads, but, uh, you know, you'd love, you'd love to be in the position of John Grisham, but I can't write the same book over and over and over and over. I just can't do that. Um, not to say that they're all the same, but, you know, I, I love Harry Bosch, but, you know, I don't think I could write yeah. 20 books about Harry Bosch. I just couldn't yeah. do that. They're all the same, Bill. They're all the same. You can all the same. <laughs> and I love those books. Honest to God, yeah. I, I read those yeah. Harry Bosch books and, and the Case Garbetta books and, you know, and they uh, yep. wrote show, read those books nonstop. But I, I just don't think that, that I could really write that all the time. So I like to try different things and do different things. And that actually works against you because you, you build up a following and a fan base and they want the mm. thing that you normally do. You know, Stephen King has been dabbling in uh, detective fiction lately and huge Stephen King fan can't get into his detective fiction at all. And I don't know if that's because, you know, I'm not, I, I just go to him because I want the one thing or if the detective fiction just doesn't work so much for me that he does. Um, but I just get bored easy and, and love so many different genres. I've got a space opera science fiction book. That's one of the best things I've ever written, but I just haven't released it yet because um, it's so completely different. It's all humor, the whole thing. Um, but I, I just get bored easy. I've got historical fiction books in the can. Um, so I just, I, I like to travel, dabble in different things. Um, but unfortunately, most readers, if they've came to you for one thing in the past, they want that thing again. And if they don't get that thing, even though it might be a, a good product, they, they don't enjoy it because they're expecting something else. Uh, but this book, uh, Demons and Dragons, does have a, a horror element to it. The, uh, the main uh, antagonist in it is a demon. There's this demon who is, is in hell, and it's, it never says that it's Satan, but, but basically... Uh, his his sort of modus operandi here is that nobody worships him anymore. Nobody thinks about uh, the evil. They don't. They think that evil is just the evil that men do to themselves, and not that it's you know a personification or a, or, a, or an actual demon. And so, what he wants to do is come to Earth and uh, create this spectacle and build this crescendo of destruction and horror and then re reveal himself as this, you know, as basically as Satan. And then, uh, and then people will never forget him again. And, and so that's sort of the, the horror element of this. And, uh, and I also wanted to explore just some of the themes that I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, you take, um, take a lot of great characters from history. They, they might have been ordinary people, but once you put them into extraordinary circumstances, they become a person that becomes legendary. And if they hadn't had those, you know, extraordinary circumstances, that might never have happened. Uh, there's probably a lot of great men that have never been great men because they've never been in a situation where, you know, that was called for. And um, so that was that was a theme I want to explore. But but the book definitely has you know sort of horrific elements to it. Um, but it is still epic fantasy in, in the truest sense. Are there, do you find times that when you're writing that you have to hold back or you have to, to your instinct goes one way and then you have to kind of rein yourself in? Depending what well, you're uh, you know, it, it's like if you've ever read, don't want to belabor Stephen King, but when Stephen King has is, is written a couple of fantasy books and there are always this horror kind of comes into it. And, you know, I, I tend to, to, to veer that way. And, but try not to go so far. If you're, you know, if you're in a, a genre, you want to stay true to that genre. But, you know, a lot of the greatest fantasy in, in the world, you know, you've got Sauron and, and what the, the, the heavy bad guys and, and whatever fantasy book that you want to look at, you know, they're pretty gnarly dudes. And, uh, you know, you, so there's, there's horrific elements 
in a lot of the great fantasy. So I don't think it's uh, out of character to bring a little bit of that into what I was doing too. What strikes me, Bill, about hearing you speak about about the stuff that you create, and it's not something I hear from a lot of creators. And I, lo I know a lot of this is not people not liking the idea of talking themselves up, but you seem to really like the stuff that you create and actually celebrate and enjoy the creation stuff that you've done rather than kind of say, this is the best that I could do. I hope somebody likes it, which is kind of what an awful lot of other creators, writers, uh, directors, etc., all say. Well, you put an enormous amount of time into these things. And um, writing prose is the most purely creative thing that you can do. And I'm a visual artist. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done film. Uh, I've done documentary. I've done uh paintings. I've done almost every kind of artistic expression that you can do other than dance. Um, <laughs> but uh, almost everyone that you can do. And the thing about writing prose is it's a blank piece of paper in your imagination. Mm -hmm. And there's no barrier between those two things. And it is so purely creative and so much fun to do until you have to rewrite. The first draft is so much fun. The rewrite sucks. But it is that that process of a story just coming out of you, out of nowhere, seemingly, is is the most joyous, creative thing I've ever experienced. And I love doing it. Uh, the hard work of making it squeaky clean and, and good and ready for the public is a whole lot harder. But but that that release of, of that creative energy is just it's just so much fun. And um, uh, and I and I, I just love doing that because I'll tell you what there there are there are passages that I've written where I had no idea what was coming next, no idea, and in the moment it just materialized, and it feels magical. It literally feels magical because there's you're, you're not even it's not even a conscious thing. It just sort of flows, and um, and you know there's. You'll hear a lot of writers saying it's the closest they've ever felt to being touched by God because it just it feels like this energy comes through you and you're just a filter. And um, it's not that easy, but but it there are times when it's just a rush. It's just such an amazing rush to feel that. And you go back and read that and say, holy crap, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally, totally relate to that feeling, Bill. It's 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 transcended. It's this feeling of um yeah and i mean if whether or not you're a spiritual person like i honestly feel like you know because i am it's like well some high end is guiding me to write this because i'm not smart enough to put make this sound this good <laughs> right so so when i write something and i and i especially in the editing phase i find that's i don't know about you like it sounds like your your favorite part is like that first draft feeling right yeah. but i know for me in the editing phase that's when i realize oh this isn't bad. Yes, I wrote some crap too, but this part, this this part's pretty good, you know. So, and that's the only time I allow myself to actually feel a bit of hubris about anything I do. Like when the, you know, that that edit stage, and you're like, hmm, you know what? This this this. So because then you realize, okay, well, the book's almost ready. If you know that you're finding more and more parts that sound okay, you know what? It's okay, right? That means you know the book's getting close to being ready. But my question for you is that: um, Do you tend to uh, throw out certain drafts? Like, you know, you got this great idea and you're writing, and it's and you're like, it just doesn't work. I'm like, crumple, crumple, or delete, and then you're on to like the next. Or maybe you come back to it, you drop it for a while. Or do, do you do you do that a, a lot? Um, so I used to be, you know, there's there's two kinds of writers plotters and pantsers the plotters, the guy that figures it all out beforehand and writes it in the pantsers and just goes in there and sees what happens. And um, I was a plotter forever and I've become something of a pantser lately. And I will start something having no idea where it's going to go. And sometimes I reach a total dead end and it's totally frustrating and it just goes over here and maybe someday I'll figure it out. Um, and, and I've become a sort of a combination. I, I'll plan a book so far and then just start writing because I think, okay, I've got enough here that I'll, I'll get there to the end. And I don't always. 
I once read a, a, a guy who was trying to give writers advice. He said, sometimes you just have to write 100 pages and see what happens. And I thought, oh, my God, you are out of your mind. Who in their right mind is just going to do that? And uh, now I do it all the time. <laughs> you know, it becomes one of those things where I'll just, uh, you know, I've got a good concept and uh, I'll tear into it and I'll get 100 pages. And I'll think, I have no idea where this, is, this should go. <laughs> and, you know, you hope that you come back to it. Uh, and I've, I've burned things in a barrel. I, I had, you know, one of those cathartic episodes in a, in a younger day when I took everything I had ever written and put it in a barrel and set it on fire. Uh, you know, so I, I think all of us have done that at one point in time and just said, you know, tabula rasa, let's just start all over again and see what happens. Wow. <laughs> you are smiling so big. You, I know you have done that. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 have done that. I, I don't. I'm an extreme plotter. Uh, I think to a obsessive, ridiculous, crazy level. But yeah, in the past, I've had some when I was in my younger days because I started writing, actually publishing late in life, and there was stuff that I, you know, I just got to the point where I was like, "Yep, burn it. <laughs> this is just, this is just not fit for public consumption. What am I doing?" Uh, this is never going to see the light of day. And just, and I, to be honest, I regret that now because I would have loved to actually have some of those manuscripts to compare, like how, if I've actually truly developed, I'd like to think I have, if I've actually progressed as a writer. Cause like all writers, I'm, I'm looking for continuous improvement. I'm trying to make each book better than the next, but I would love to look back at those manuscripts of my very young self. And that I thought was, oh my gosh, this is a dumpster fire that I just chucked that I'd like to see, I really like to compare them and see, well, was it that much of a dumpster fire or is it my nostalgia saying that I was so horrible before, but really, I mean, we all know, I mean, we, we grow and evolve as, as people, but that's still part of my writing. Do you know what I mean? Like whatever you wrote that you just burned, Bill, like that's still part of the evolution of who you became. So I'm sure there was elements and aspects in there. You, if you look back now, you're probably like, well, that part really wasn't that bad. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, in retrospect, but, but yeah, I, 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 I feel you. I've done. <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you though, uh, and this is sort of a hard truth for me. I, I found some old manuscripts and stuff, and went back and read them, and they were horrible. <laughs> they were. They should have been burned. Uh, yeah. It's 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 one of the processes we do in adult education actually when we get people to do reflections at the start, the middle, and the end. And often, even though there's only maybe a two three month gap between doing those pieces of writing, you know very open form you know there's no real structure to them we give them some prompts that's it often when people go back and and are doing that reflective bit with a question whether the time and effort that they put in has been worth it you just get them to read what they wrote themselves two three months previously and often what they all say is i don't recognize that person anymore the person that wrote that isn't the person that's sitting here today and actually just that not being able to evaluate and look at that piece of writing you've done beforehand just reaffirms to yourself actually, you must be doing something right. The time and energy that you're investing into doing something is coming out in something positive that you can see with your own eyes, regardless of having outside you know, validation of that. Right. And that's one of the things that makes me amazed when people are married 50 years, because you are different <laughs> people all through your life. And that evolution of you has to go, that other person has to evolve in a similar track with you. And so um, it, it's amazing if you look back at the different stages of who you were as a teenager in your 20s or 30s, you're a completely different person during those phases. And if you're a creative person, your creations are, are completely different during those periods of time. I guess I like evolution. This is my third marriage, so I'm, I'm all about about. <laughs> I'm all about the change. Happy I, marriage. I'll tell you, <laughs> I, first marriage was when I was 57. And... It is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I've gone through all these, these, yeah. all these problems. And this woman has literally kept me alive. And I can't tell you the details of how she's done it because they're disgusting. They're so gross. Uh, you know, cleaning wounds, just, just ridiculous stuff. But this, she, her name's Wendy, and, and she has literally saved my life half a dozen times in the last six months. Wow, that sounds amazing. Wow. Kudos to you. I'm happy that, yeah. that you found Wendy, and that's that sounds great. I'm happy for you. Uh, uh, I just I could never, I could never. It's it's just a gift. It's a gift. It's just a gift, yeah, and I'm just so grateful for it. Yeah, it is. Uh, shout out to my lovely wife Debbie, who's also my 
my business partner and manager and <laughs> keeps me basically none of none of anything nothing happens without them so love you honey i i yeah just that bill's talking about yeah. when he just reminds me together you know we all have to be grateful we have partners that we for sure partners pets yeah. whatever it is that you love then you know yeah, and working you. and and having a relationship at the same time together that's a tough one right there mm -hmm. yeah you know um i always say that you know I am someone who, um, you know, we're, you know, there's not, it's not a lot of people and it, it's more my fault, my issue, I think that I, I'm not, would be more my getting, working with me would be the issue rather than the other person. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I found someone who's able to work, you know, work not only in a relationship, but at, at an actual entrepreneur um, business. And, you know, that it, it's, and it's a lot of work and Deb does a lot of work behind the scenes that, Nobody knows and nobody sees, but you know I am eternally grateful for hers. And you know I, I, I and obviously Wendy's done a lot. I mean, we don't see Wendy cleaning your wounds, but obviously you're sitting here, so you know what I mean. And it's that unsung uh, hero element that I think is is about a lot of our partners, the people we love, our our pets, whoever that keep us going. That you know, um, it's it's just it's really it's been phenomenal. That's well, awesome. and you know, you were talking about your 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 entrepreneurial endeavors. People have no idea what goes into creation and what it takes to put it out. You know, they, they see a product and they'll consume that product, you know, in an instant, if it's a visual image or in a, in a few, few days, if it's a, if it's a book or in a couple of hours, if it's a movie and I've worked on many feature films and every one of them took two years of my life. Yeah. And the, the consumer of these things has no idea what, how much of your life just in hours and minutes and how much of your energy and your passion and everything else goes into these creative products. And, uh, which is why it's really hard when you get a bad review or, you know, somebody, somebody, you know, dumps on something and, you know, you've, you've, you've spent such an enormous amount of passion into these things. Um, but, but, but the, the, the people have never been through that. They just have no idea what it yeah. takes to, to get something out to the public. How do you handle your, I mean, I'm still a novice writer for all intents and purposes. I'm still, I have two books out. I'm writing my third. That's going to be published shortly. So, but you're a veteran experienced writer though. Like I know for me, like as I write more, um, I obviously I care about reviews. I care about what people think about my work. I, I, I care about how readers feel, you know, I, I feel that, um, there's that balance between, you know, you, you know, when you see a review, especially if it's the same things being said about your book consistently by a lot of reviewers, you have to pay attention. You can't be tone deaf. I think you need to, if there's some, uh, you know, exposure in your writing, you need to address that and perhaps, you know, perhaps go to beta readers or your editor and say, hey, you know, a lot of reviewers, reviewers are saying this and this keeps, this is something that's consistent on my writing that, you know, maybe, but then there's that other hand of, okay, well, you know, a lot of our, it's something that could be an element that other people really like. Right. So you, you have your audience that really, really likes this, but then some people don't, you know, but so there's that balance between taking the feedback and and actually employing it or or sometimes not uh, in your work. But I know for me, I think the more I write, you know, I mean, I still care a lot about reviews. I, I, you know, I'm still, you know, sensitive to a certain point of my writing and caring what people think. And I'm blessed that for the most part, I, I don't have a huge, huge audience, but most people that read my book, uh, read my books, like them and give me positive feedback. But Obviously, I've had bad reviews like everybody else. How do you how do you approach reviews? Do you still read them all? Do you you've done film? Obviously, there that's a whole other a whole other you know ball game when it comes to to critiques. Like, do you uh, still spend a lot of time and effort looking at your reviews? Do you respond to you know people who write your reviews? Like, how do you handle reviews? I do read the reviews. Uh, I do several rounds of beta reading. For the people that don't know that, it's just readers that read the books before you ever let them out. And uh, I go through several rounds of that. And like you said, there there are people that, you know, you have five beta readers and two of them will, will love this story and three of them will hate it. And so you have to rightly divide that thing. But I do read reviews. And um, I've I've gotten to a point in my life where you you can, there are some people that do a review and the whole, the whole review is about them. Even though that looks like they're reviewing your book, it's about their bugaboos or the axes they want to grind. And you read those and you discount them. And there's some people that are having a bad day and they just decided that you were going to be the person that they crapped on. Uh, and then there's some people that put a lot of real thought and, and you know, 
give you actually good information. And then there's some people that just said, had a great time uh, and, you know, don't give you much to go on, but, you know, they gave you a four-star review or whatever it was. But I, I do read the reviews. Uh, but I've gotten to a point where I don't take them to heart uh, and I try to sort of filter the ones that are, I mean, there's some, uh, I, I had a one-star review on, on my first book and the woman was basically upset that I wasn't Stephen King. Uh, because in one of the, the, the media things that had went out, it said, if you like Stephen King and, and Dean Koontz and these different people, you'll like this. And uh, that book was quite bloody. It, that, that book was, was kind of viciously bloody. And that was my intent for that book. And uh, she was just so pissed that I was not Stephen King and uh, that the book was, was kind of R-rated. And uh, she just just tore that book up. It was one of the first reviews. So it took me forever to get the average of the reviews up to, you know, uh, it's, it's like a 4.2 now. But, uh, you know, you just get those readers. And if they're the first review and it's a one-star review, people just go right past your book. They don't even look and see what the review is about. So um, reviews are this real double-edged sword. It's really hard to get them. Uh, uh, I've been fortunate that, my average reviews on, on Amazon are about four, two and on Goodreads are about four, four. Um, but it, it's, you know, you can't let them kill your creativity. And I think that's where you were going. You can't let them be a dagger in your heart. Um, and you, you just have to kind of slough that off and keep going. Uh, there, there are certain parts of this process, like trying to get a publisher, trying to get an, uh, an agent and all these things that just destroy you. You know, you know, you, you've got, you make 50 attempts to get a, a publisher, an agent or whatever it would happen to be. And that process crushes your creativity just because you're spending a lot of time on it. You're, you might not be getting the traction that you want. And so there's so many elements of this process that can uh, make it harder to do what you do. And there are, there are periods that I've gone through where I just say, I'm just going to keep writing books. I'm going to write these books. I'm going to write the books I want to write, the, the ones that are coming out of me, and people are going to like it or they're not. Um, but you also, on the other hand, you can't be tone deaf to what, you know, the feedback that you're getting. Um, so I, I, I hear you. I, I hear that. Uh, it's just crushing my creativity to have to go through the process and to have these people that just, you know, have no understanding of what it takes to do what you do and just put that dagger in your heart. I understand that. Um, and so, like most things, there's something in the middle, you know, there's taking that feedback, but finding a way for it not to, you know, dampen your creativity and your enthusiasm to keep going. I have a question from from Natasha. Uh, Bill, what is your favorite genre to read or write? Well, I, I've been a horror fan forever. Uh, you know, I, I was four and five years old and my mother and I would stay up and watch children's theater. And uh, I've just been a horror fan just as far back as it goes. And my wife always says, you're such a sweet person. How does this come out of you? Um, I, I wrote a story that's going to be in an upcoming collection that has her in it and uh, the names changed and all that kind of stuff. And she said, you're just going to kill me at the end, aren't you? You're just going to have, I'm just going to have a horrible death at the end, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's horror. That's, that's what's going to happen. Um, but, you know, I think uh, romance writers that's in their soul. You know, I think science fiction writers that's in their soul. And my soul is obviously very dark and horrible because that's what comes out of me. <laughs> Somebody said that the, the uh, recently said like anybody that's involved in horror just seems to be the sweetest, nicest people there there, there are. You know, just in yeah. show business or in in the creativity world. I just watched uh, a film last night uh, by Norm J. Warren. Sadly, passed away recently. But again, like the most disgusting stuff on on screen. But just seems like the most lovely man. You know. Well, I think I think you know part of it is that you can exercise your demons through that creative yeah. stuff, and you know you don't have to let them stay inside of you. But the reason that I write horror is that. It is the, it is, to me, it's the only genre where you get to tackle the big stuff. 
you know, life and death and afterlife. And is there a soul? And is there a God? And is there evil? And is that evil a personification? Or is it just the things that, that are part of human beings? Um, and, you know, you don't get to do that in detective fiction or romance fiction or science fiction. Science fiction, you can get to tackle some, some big issues. But when it comes down to those human things that are the fundamental questions of, of life and humanity, you get to play with those pieces in horror like you don't get to in any other genre. And that's one of the things that I really, really love about it. It also strikes me that horror is a, a genre that naturally leads people to poke fun and have fun and play with very serious things as well. So rather than just exploring them, it's a playground, you know, very much. And, and everything's kind of on the table in whatever way you want to portray that or, or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's different subgenres of horror where, you know, there's no boundaries. You can go as yeah. far and wild and crazy as you want to go. Um, and the other thing I like about horror, th there's no detective conventions out there. You know, there's actually a couple of romance conventions out there, but it's very few and far between. But there are always horror cons going on. And the reason is, is that there's, there is a, there is an audience for that, even when the market's down or whatever. There is a fan base who loves that stuff, and they are loyal, and they stick with it. And there's not too many genres that, you know, you're going to have, you know, you can look it up, and there's 20 conventions a year built around horror. There's just not very many genres like that. That's right. That's true. Yeah, Steve's definitely got me into uh reading more horror since I met my, my dear friend here. And, uh, you know, and I've been loving it, right? The, the little that I've read, I haven't read a lot more, but I'm planning to, as the years go by, to introduce a little bit more horror. Um, and I love fantasy horror. That's mm -hmm. always been something that I'm, I'm, re I'm, that I'm really, and I'm really starting to dig at now. And the psychological elements, especially of dark fantasy, because a lot of dark fantasy almost mimics a horror, especially with a cosmic horror element. You know, stuff like uh, Zemiel Akhtar, Gunmetal Gods, and his books are just, you know, like, they have that cosmic horror, and it's just, it's just so good, right? Well, so. let me, there's this guy named Bill Richardson, let me turn you on to him. <laughs> <laughs> on my TBR right now. His, his, his horror, uh, his, his last book, Hellfighters, was a cosmic horror book, so you, you should uh, check that out. Definitely, definitely, okay, okay. And he's a nice guy, too, I mean, for the most part. <laughs> for the most part. Depends who you ask, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and when? Uh, <laughs> you ask and when? Yeah. Drew had a comment. Uh, Bill, have you ever been asked to give halftime speeches? <laughs> uh, halftime speeches. Not halftime speeches, but I have had a few people want me to do speaking engagements, which is weird. Um, but uh, not, not a halftime speech. I, I've had... Uh, a, a few other little bit more strange things. I've, I've had many different lives and done many different things. And uh, I have had a few people want me to speak on different topics and, and pay me to do it, which is even weirder. You'd be a great graduation speech, Bill. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, uh, one of the things that I had an opportunity to do the, the graduation speech at my high school at one point. And I, I didn't do that at the, at the time for, for several reasons. But I've always wished to get that opportunity again because I came from one of the poorest places in America. And, uh, and I just wanted people to understand that the world is so big and it's so easy, especially with, with all the Internet connectivity that we've got to have, you know, a friend from Ireland, you know, uh, and, and have uh, and, and get to go to uh, Sri Lanka or wherever it would happen to be. And so uh, I, I just, one of the things we do as people is that we sort of get into our own day-to-day -day and we, we, we don't stop and think about the millions of possibilities that are out there. And uh, I've, I've wanted, I, I, I talk to young people quite a bit in different, different parts of my life and different uh, iterations of my life. And just to turn them on to you know, all the just amazing things. And all you got to do is just, you know, plunk down $600, work for it, put it down yeah. and fly to Europe and, and see all the amazing art. And I've, God has blessed me. I have been to the, I have seen the greatest art in, Amer in, in America and in Europe and in Russia. And uh, just to have those opportunities to enrich your life in that way 
when I got to go to the Louvre, it was like going to the Vatican. It was, it was just a pilgrimage. And uh, I, I did a whirlwind, this is off the subject, but I did this whirlwind tour through Europe to see all the great art with my, with my lovely bride, Wendy. It was, it was our, on our honeymoon. And the last thing that we went to on the very last day of this trip was we got to see the Last Supper. Hmm. And wow. the Last Supper is in a hermetically sealed room, and you're only allowed to be in it 15 minutes a time with 15 people. And it's as quiet as a pin dropping. And when we got back on the bus and left, I just spontaneously began to weep because on that trip, I'd gotten to see the David, Pieta, the Mona Lisa, and capped it off, and, and many, many other great works, and capped it off with uh, The Last Supper. And as a, as a boy living in, I'm telling you, the poorest place in America, to get to have those experience, it was it was just revolutionary to my soul. And, um, and, and I preach that that's a gospel that I preach to a lot of people that you need to have those experiences, whatever the thing is for you, you know, if it's music or art or whatever it happens to be, take some of your life and go just immerse yourself in those things. And don't, don't be afraid to just jump on a plane or a car and, and, and go, powerful stuff bill because it's at the, it's the very heart of like i work to try and provide education in settings that that there isn't any except education is a way out but one of the things that myself and the, the person that i work with very closely believe is access to the arts is one of the most uh, enriching and important parts of that process you know giving people experiences that sit outside their normal the things that they would even consider that they would even like but once they're in that position how life-changing that whole uh, the whole thing can be. I'd, I've been in those couple of situations myself where I kind of prejudged something went, why would I want to go do that? Why would I want to go and see that or something? In that experience and come out of it and come out of a changed person because, you know, those experiences are, are powerful, as you say. Can, can I give you one? Yes, sure. So uh, I'm in Russia. I'm in Russia four and a half years after the Soviet Union fell. And, you know, I was a Cold War baby and we hated the Russians and everything. <laughs> and so uh, it was an amazing experience just to get to find out how wonderful the Russian people were. They had been our enemies for my entire life. And so on that trip, I went to this uh, little museum called the Pushkin. And uh, I walked up to this painting and I didn't recognize it at first. And uh, it's um, one of the last paintings Van Gogh did in his life. And it's called the exercise yard. And it's, uh, it's a, a, a group of men walking in a circle with these stone walls all around them. And they're in a prison and it's called the exercise yard. And that's these men walking in the circle to get their exercise. And the circle of men is perfect, except there's this one little gap. And there's the, the guy that's the focal point of the painting. And he's looking back over his shoulder at the, the viewer. And he has this look of immense sadness on his face. And uh, Van Gogh painted it when he was in a mental institution just before he died. And it was one of probably the last 10 paintings he did and then he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And then to see, to be that close to that painting and see just the sadness in that person's face that he had painted. And you know he's painting himself you know that he is saying, this is what I feel and it's killing me. Uh, and I, I've never had that kind of electricity happen before where I felt like I was teleported into the mind of that human being at that time. Uh, and it's choking me up right now. But it was, it was such a, an amazing experience to basically feel like you're looking into Van Gogh's eyes by looking into that painting. And it was, uh, it was just, it's just an amazing experience. Wow. That's powerful. And that, that's, that's what the arts and travel give you. I mean, that's, those, those are the two pillars I think that, that make people's lives expand is, is travel and the arts. Mm. Well, I'd have to agree that that is, um, that is so critical to shaping your worldview traveling. 
um, experience other experiencing other cultures, meeting people that that don't you know necessarily. Uh, we're all human beings. We're all essentially the same when you break it down to brass tacks. But people who speak different languages have worship different faiths, uh, eat different foods than than you do. I think that's so critical to uh, development, especially emotional intelligence and understanding others. I think that's yeah. The, one of the best things you can do is. It's expensive. It can be expensive, but uh, if you can to travel, even if it's just outside your province or your state, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, to another part of the country, if you can't afford to to leave the country, but if you can, you know, fly, you know, go international, you know, see somewhere different, and um, you know that you talk about um, development and and you know who you were before is not well. I think that can really uh, speed up your development in terms of you know. Um, the evolution of who you are when you travel and you see different places. Absolutely. And one of the things that I have found just that Russia trip is an example. You know, there's people that we hated and, and feared our entire lives. And uh, every image you would see on television were these gritty, ugly, broken mm-hmm. down people. And I saw some of the most beautiful people I've ever seen when I was in Russia. And uh, just beautiful and blonde and, and energetic. And they loved Americans. You know, they, I mean, this is four years after the Soviet Union, and they were just so happy to meet an American. And we had such a bonding experience. And that, that taught me that the stuff that you get through, through media is a filter. And a lot of times it's complete BS. And, and the other thing that it taught me was that we are 99.9% the same, regardless of your country or your race or your origin, your ethnicity, or or any of the other aspects. We are so much more alike than we are uh, different. And if everybody could experience that, then so much of our problems in the world would go yeah. away. Uh, Colin's Corner had a question, and, and Drew is also asking this. For the, un, for the uninitiated, what is a good starting place for any of your works? Well, you know, it kind of depends on what you want. I think um, Hell Fighters is probably my best book uh, in, the, in the horror genre. The new book uh, of Demons and Dragons, it's a short read. It's got a lot of art in, in it. And uh, if you're not a big reader, it could be a good place for you to start. It deals with epic themes uh, and sort of these larger-than-life characters. Uh, my first book, uh, More Than Evil, is I wrote this book to just be a bloody roller coaster ride. The, you know, one of the things that they tell you is make your first sentence in a book something that catches people's attention. I tried to make every single chapter begin with a hook sentence so that that every time you read it, you would want to read the next. And I made all the chapters really short. And there's a point that you get to in that book on about page 80 when you might as well forget about it. You're going to read the rest of that book in that setting. Uh, and and I, I engineered it in that way so that it would just be a page turner and it would just keep you just rolling down the road. And so if, if you like that kind of book more than evil is a great thing, a great book. And um, Hellfighters has got some really good writing in it. There's some cosmic uh, writing in there and sort of this, you know, looking into the universe sort of stuff. And um, but it's also, you know, fast paced and fun. Uh, and then uh, Demons and Dragons, again, as I said, it's shorter. Uh, it'll give you a flavor for that. And I hope that in about eight months, I'm going to have a short story collection out. Uh, and the, one of the reasons I'm doing that is that a lot of people don't want to commit to a novel if they've never read your work before. But they will give you a story or two. Um, but that's still in the offing. But, but that gives you an idea of, of uh, the books that are out there. And uh, I'll be honest, they, they have been very well received. And people have had a lot of very kind things to say about them. And uh, my number one rule is don't be boring. So uh, you're not going to go in there and, you know, think, oh, I got to read 100 pages before it gets interesting. Uh, We're going to rock and roll as soon as you sit down and and I'm going to keep you there. Nice. All queued up on Amazon, ready to go. And I try to deal with some 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 big themes in, in some of the books. The, the first one, like I said, More Than Evil is just, you know, paired up. Um, but but there's some big concepts that I deal with in Hellfighters. And that, like I said, that's the great thing about horror. You get to play in that sandbox yeah. where yeah. you get to play with the big questions. 
that will always get me. If a book has compelling themes, you know, I think we talked towards the last page chewing. Um, it was with oh, it was with the brothers Gwyn. Brothers Gwyn, um, yeah. And you know, prose, um, you know, compelling themes. Those are 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 just two. Well, there's three things, but prose and compelling themes are two of the things that definitely will will get me. Yeah. Any great work works on two levels at least. You know, there's the plot, but then there's also that subtext and those themes and those those larger things that that you're you're trying to address. Um, and they're the, the, those are the, ultimately the human aspects of it. You know, mm. that's the things we're all struggling with. We're all struggling with, you know, what is our purpose and, and what is, what is meaning in life. And, uh, you, you need to have those underpinnings in there, uh, as well as a rock and roll story. Yeah. But ultimately it's the characters that get me. If you write good characters, I can forgive a lot of things. If those <laughs> characters grab me, you know. Yeah, that's that you have me. So, I, I want to tell you something. Character is the most important thing in writing. It just is. Think think about the books Frankenstein and Dracula. Those books to a modern modern reader are very difficult to read. Yeah. Um, but those characters have lived forever, and and so they were crafted in such a way that they have spoken to people for two hundred years. And it's the characters. It's not the prose because it's 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 not a prose that we're familiar with. It's not the plot because the plot is is kind of clunky in 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 some aspects of it and, and sort of disjointed for a modern reader. It is those characters. And if and if you want to write something that will live a long time, you make a great character. You make a great character, and that's the thing that is going to live beyond you. I totally agree. I totally agree. That is that is what I love to read. That's what I try to write. Um, I want to write a character that will far outlive me. And, uh, you know, it's yeah, that's that's I, I totally agree. Bill. that's so well said. So, so well said. I, I think, you know, not to get too deep into the, the craft, but a lot of the great characters have a certain amount of archetype to them. You know, you think about Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you think about the struggle of, of, of Frank, the Frankenstein monster, who is, you know, what is life? What is what is being a human being? I mean, those are very, very fundamental questions. Uh, and then the, the struggle against your father. So those archetypical uh, themes that run all the way back to, to the Greek writings and, 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 and before that, those added with a really interesting character with foibles and problems and and you know, human failings, but also somebody who finds a way to rise above that. You do that and you got a book that people are going to want to read. Well, based on that, I can't wait till you read your books. Yeah. They, sound, they, sound, they sound awesome. Well, uh, I, I don't think I've created uh, an Arthur Conan Doyle character yet, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't have my Sherlock Holmes yet, but you know, it's, it's something to work. Yeah. We're all striving for that. We're yeah. All striving yeah. for that. So, well, you know, those guys wrote a lot of other books too, you know, it's just yeah. one home run. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think body of work, if you are fortunate enough to live a long life, have a long writing career, I think body of work gives you the best chance to have that out of all the books you write, to have that character. If you write multiple series, what have you, standalones, you know, shorts, I think that gives you that opportunity to have that one, that one character that, that, you know, somewhere in there that people are going to go, ah, latch on to it and uh, let me let me tell you something so i've had a crazy last six months i've spent 100 days in the hospital almost died several times uh, uh i still have a situation where the you know normally you go to a doctor and he says well you do this this and this and you'll get better i've yet to have a doctor tell me that uh mm -hmm. they look at my situation and they say i don't know i don't really know how it's going to turn out man just we're going to keep chugging along and see what happens and that's terrifying i'm just sorry that's terrifying uh, but one thing this ordeal has taught me is that weed out all the garbage in your life, all the distractions in your life, the things that don't matter in your life. I want to spend all my time writing and being with the people that I love. And everything else is just stuff that gets in the way. And, uh, you know, I've been a, I'm, don't want to say this, but sort of a Renaissance person in that I'm a 
visual artist. I've been a filmmaker. Uh, I've done documentaries and feature films and all kinds of these different things. But this process made me realize what I've been through is that what I really want to do more than anything is be good to the people I love and write books. And everything else is, is stuff I've just got to push out of the way. Really simplistic, eh? Really simplistic. It is. That, it is. Find right. that passion, that thing that matters to you. Nail that. Nail that every day, and love the people that are that are close to you. And if you do that, you are going to have an awesome life. Well Thank said. you for that, Bill. Thank you. Very well said. That that's. I'm going to carry that with me. I I, and you know, as much as I think I do that, I need to up my game. Thanks to your. Your inspirational words so well when, yeah. when you're young you think you have forever time is mm. a limited quantity and uh the the further you get down the road you realize that that is not true that uh that all the little tangents that you go on might be you know fun diversions but uh you're off mission boy you know get get, get, get back on that road and and get where you're trying to get i totally agree when i i think when i turn 50 and you realize you have more years behind it than ahead. You, you know, I'm almost 54 now. You realize that, yeah, you you have to hone in, focus, focus on, like you said, the things that are, that are important. And we all hope to be blessed with a long life, but we never know how, how long or short it's going to be. And uh, yeah, no, those are words to live by, Bill. Thank you for that. I had a guy ask me once, he said, what's 50 like? I said, I'll tell you what 50 is like. It's like sand running through my fingers. Like it's going so fast through my fingers that I can't stop it. And there's nothing I can do about that sand. It's just going and going and going. And so uh, that sort of made me, it was another thing that made me refocus and say, you know, you don't know what God's going to give you, but he does give you do what you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really powerful stuff. Bill. Powerful stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, life, life is short, no matter you're, if you're 15 or if you're 50 or if you're a hundred, you know, a hundred years on the world is not a lot of years. Uh, so try to get yourself to that point where you can, you can follow your passion, figure out a way to make a living doing it and uh, keep those people that you love close to you. Very wise words. Very wise words. It's a question I often ask people when I'm doing the life coachy stuff that, that I do. When I say, like, I don't care what age you are, and I don't mean to be morbid about this, but if you were to die tomorrow, right, what would you feel of the value of your your life at that stage? Doesn't matter if you're 15, 30, 50, whatever that age is. And, you know, think of the value of your life and then think about tomorrow as redressing that, 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 question that you asked yourself the day before because if you weren't happy about it what is it you should have done what are the things you would like to do and you know as a father you know there's certain things or parents certain things play into that that are outside your control like kids being happy and all that kind of stuff that do take time but taking that out of it look at the other things so it is that it very much ties into that idea absolutely and one of the things about life is that you live it and you get caught up in the things that you're doing and the day-to-day and it's it's very rare. Um, most people go around, they're listening to something on their phone all the time, or they're in conversation, or they're doing something, and they never take any quiet, still time to just think about their life and their path and where they want to be. And most people, the only quiet time they have in their life is when they lay down to go to bed, and then all that stuff starts running through your brain and you can't go to sleep. Uh, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not saying meditate or whatever. But find, a, a, find 10 minutes a day to turn off everything, sit in a room by yourself, and just think about what are the, your priorities, and your life will get better, I promise you. Very wise words. And uh, Bill, I, I hate to, uh, and I know you have to go, but it's always a pleasure talking to you and mm-hmm. connecting with you. Well, uh, I, I love doing this uh, and love, love getting to meet you, you gentlemen today. Yeah. Um, my pleasure wow. it's been an honor this, to this was so good an honor to me yeah well well thank you uh you, you you hope that becoming an old fart at least teaches you something <laughs> i keep telling myself that bill but i don't know I, i'm not any smarter than i was when i was you know a young whippersnapper and now i'm an old fart and i i'm not even i don't know 
I don't know. Let me tell you something, man. 54, you got 30 years, man. Wear it out. You got 30 years to just wear it out. So tear it up. And 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 too. Right back uh, at you, brother. I, I actually, yeah. I was I was going to do a reading tonight, but we we've run out of time. And uh, it's a it's a really short piece that's going to be in the the short story collection, which is going to be called uh, "Screams All the Way Down." Uh, when it it'll probably come out in in September this year. Uh, but but anyway, it's it's about you don't know the future, and sometimes if you did know how much time you let you had left, mm. it would be counterproductive. Uh, so live like you're going to live 30 years, but think like you got a year. Yeah. I got a year. I got a, I got a, you know, I got a year left. What am I going to do with that year? And at the end of that year, you think I got a year left. What am I going to, how am I going to prioritize for that year? And if you keep doing that, you're going to look back in five years and think, Dad, come it, man. I put out some good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, uh, Bill, for anyone wanting to find you, where's the best place for people to connect with you or find more about your work? Uh, really, one of the places is, is go to my website, BillRichardson.com, and it's Bill with one L. And uh, also check out my my Amazon author page, uh, and also there's a Goodreads a Goodreads author page as well. But out on Amazon, like I said, my new book is of Demons and Dragons. It's an epic fantasy. Uh, my other books are uh, Hellfighters and More Than Evil that are they're horror books. And uh, uh, I got a lot of stuff that's ready to come out. So I'm going to be putting out a lot of great stuff, a lot of fun stuff. And I will never bore you. And I may be <laughs> something that, uh, that will enrich your life. Uh, really good stuff. Uh, before we go, Chris, where can people connect with you if they're looking to find you? Hey, you can find me on my YouTube channel at my name at Twitter uh, at seven o'clock shadow or on the page June forms. Uh, Mr. PL Stewart, where can people find you and, and uh, tell you about all your books or find uh, books? usually find me beside you, Steve and Taylor on page chewing, um, Friday night conversations and our main page chewing, uh, interviews. Uh, the books are www.plstewart.com, the John King of Saga, two books out. Uh, a John King, The Last Atlantis, and Lord and King about to drop in the next month or two. Um, social media. Um, uh, sorry, I just want to pause and let Brandy. Um, oh, just uh, Bill, health-wise, I'm going through something similar and really needed to hear that today. Thank you. Well, uh, God bless you, man. It's, it's, you know, that old cliche about if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a very true thing. And uh, keep optimism. Keep your optimism up. That's it, it, it's it's one of the things that heals you is is to keep a positive attitude, even when it's hard to keep a positive attitude. And find something funny. Go out on on Netflix or whatever. Give yourself a laugh. The physical act of laughing makes you feel better. And when we get off here tonight, make yourself laugh, even if it's not something funny. Just the act of laughing creates all these hormones and everything that get released in your body and it makes you feel better so put some laughter in your life and it will really help good advice yeah i just want to say shout out to brandy and uh wishing you all the best yeah. so for sure um yeah uh, quickly yeah so peel stir right at peel stir rights is the twitter that's my preferred social media uh platform and uh on that before we go blog where i'm an assistant editor where steve's also a blogger and uh all the uh, all the reviews off of Goodreads, and uh, so yeah, that's where you can find. Awesome. Well, Bill, I hope we can convince you to come back sometime when when it's convenient for you. Love to. Maybe uh, maybe in the fall. Let's just get together. Cool. Yeah. Just let awesome. us know in, and we'll make time. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thanks everyone for coming by and for visiting and interacting with us. It's always a pleasure, and we will see everyone soon. Have a great uh, great Friday or great weekend. Take care.